Excellent singing. Thank you, uh, Pastor Will, for filling in for Pastor Nate. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Uh, we are continuing a series um, of talking about what it means to take the, the gospel to the world around us. And uh, we're going through this book, I Am Going. If uh, you um, do not have one of these, and check your box in the back. There's still a number back there. If you say, I don't know if I have a box, but you're a regular attender. Maybe you might have a box since you checked last, so go check it. But if you haven't uh, gotten one of those and you'd like one, please uh, see me and I'll make sure you get it uh, as well. Today the, the topic is, I am going <coughs> excuse me, to my neighborhood. <coughs> what, does, what do you think of when I say the word neighbor? What comes to mind? I remember many years ago when this idea of who our neighbor is began to change in the way that I think. Uh, to me, uh, and maybe to you, a neighbor is the person who lives directly next to you. A lot of times that's the way we think. It's the, the one next door. Maybe if you get along with them, the one across the street, or possibly if you really like them, the one down the way, you would call your neighbor. In the summer of 1994, I had just finished my freshman year of college, and uh, I uh, was home for, for the summer, and my youth pastor, Pete Weary, many of you know him, uh, he asked me to go on a mission trip with uh, the youth group from our church to Canada. And so I, I said, sure, I'll go. We spent most of our time in Montreal um, with a missionary that some of you know uh, by the name of Paul Pelletier. Paul passed away just a few years ago, but uh, Paul was there in Montreal. We worked with him most of the time we were in Montreal. We spent a couple days in Quebec City. Uh, Montreal is primarily French-speaking. Now, there are a number of people there who speak English, but uh, the, the main language is, is French. And, uh, and so one day as we were in uh, Montreal, we were scattered the group there was about 30 of us that went we were scattered throughout the city and we were going uh, from house to house and we were giving them information about the church that we were working with and and then we'd also give them a little gospel track and uh, we uh, in, in Canada I don't know about today but at least in 1994 uh, the laws were such that it wasn't illegal to put information in a mailbox here in the U.S. it is uh, and I understand that but uh, in Canada, that wasn't. And so what we would do is we would take this information, we'd go up and we'd put it in the mailbox, and we'd turn around and walk away. The intention was not to talk to people. In fact, most of us were terrified of that concept that maybe we might have to have someone talk to us. And uh, so we, were, we would many times go as quickly as we could up and put it in and then, and then hightail it out of there as fast as we could. My group went into a neighborhood that was actually fairly affluent. It was nice houses. Uh, they were actually brownstone houses, if you're familiar with that type of house. And, uh, and so in order to get to the mailbox, the mailbox was by the door, we had to walk up uh, a flight of stairs and put it in the mailbox. I remember going to one particular house and, and I walked up the stairs and I had the information and I put it in the mailbox and I turned around to walk away and just as my back turned to the door, I heard the door open. And I remember sitting there going, oh no, what do I do? What happens if they speak to me in French? I don't know what to do. Should I run? Maybe I should run. Didn't think that was a good idea. 
And so I started to turn around to see who it was and, and begin to talk to them or attempt to talk to them. And before I could, the woman at the door said something to me in French. Now, my wife can attest to this. When it comes to languages, even English I struggle with, but any other language, I, I cannot learn languages. I learned uh, Greek, uh, in the, in the, the Bible, Greek, when I was in college, but that's not a spoken language, and uh, I, I can't speak other languages at all. I've been to other countries, and missionaries try to teach me phrases and, and, uh, when I was in Uruguay in Spanish and in Romania, uh, Romanian, and I, I, I just, I, I don't know. The way my mind works, it doesn't work well. And so, but they had taught us to say a few phrases or attempted to teach us to, to teach us to say a few phrases. And so I turned around, I saw the woman, and I tried to, in the best I possibly, French I could, say, I only speak English. And I don't know what I actually said. Uh, the woman began to laugh at me. And, uh, and then she said in English, which, by the way, her English was probably better than mine, uh, she said, um, um, and who are you? We began a conversation. It was actually a, a very nice conversation, and, and we talked for quite a while. She asked me what I was doing. I explained it to her, and uh, we talked about the church, and I talked about uh, a little bit about um, what we were doing that week. And, then, and I remember after we talked for a while, she, she, just, she looked at me and she said, so where are you from? And I said to her, the U.S., and uh, she got a big grin on her face, and she said, it's nice to meet, to meet a neighbor. And I remember thinking about that and thinking, well, you don't live next door to me. And, and it came to my realization as, at, at that moment that the idea of a neighbor is, is more than just the person who lives next door or the person who lives uh, two houses down. The, the, idea, the concept of a neighbor is something more than that. And from that point on, I began to allow that mindset to change as I interacted with people. And as I've had the opportunity to go on trips in, in different parts of our country, in different parts of the world, and you meet people who are, are different than you, don't speak the same language, don't have the same culture, or, or whatever it is, you begin to um, realize that even though they're different, they're still my neighbor. I've interacted with Native Americans on a reservation in New Mexico. I've interacted with, with gypsy people in Romania. And every time I try to have that thought that these people are my neighbor. And today we're going to continue and we're going to discuss that idea of who is my neighbor. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25 is a familiar story. If you have studied the Bible uh, for any period of time, you probably have at least heard of this story. And so we're not going to take a long time to talk about this Story, but I want to just read it as a, kind of an introduction. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to, a, to the test. This lawyer stood up and he wanted to get Jesus to make a mistake. Now that was very common. You read the Gospels, you see that happen all the time, whether it was religious leaders or whether it was others. They were trying to get Jesus to, to falter. Jesus was not... Uh, should not have been known as, a, as an intelligent person, but yet he was, because he was God. And, and so many times, uh, he would cause these people to stand in amazement of his brilliance. And so because of that, they wanted to get him to stumble. And so this lawyer says to them, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, he quoted to him, the idea is, uh, you should love God, you should love your neighbor. It was a common understanding. Jesus had taught that many times. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied by telling a story. He said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest who was going down that road, and when he saw him, and when he saw this beaten man, he passed by on the other side. He went as far away as he possibly could. The priest, the pastor, the guy who knew the law, the guy who should have at least had some understanding that he should stop and help, went the other way. He goes on and says, so, verse 32, so likewise a Levite, one who knew the law, uh, one who, who studied the law, one who understood what the Bible had to say, when he came to that same place and saw the man, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... Now, just quickly, most of you uh, maybe understand this or know this, but the Samaritans uh, and the Jews did, did not get along. They argued over everything. It had to do with the fact that the Jews thought the Samaritans were a mixed race and... And, uh, and so they, they uh, did not look, want to look upon them. The Jews were told to only marry Jews in the law. And so the Samaritans were, were people who were Jews and who married outside of the Jewish race. And so therefore they were dirty. And oftentimes they would be looked upon as, as filth. And so the Samaritan here stops and he sees this man. This guy who would have been not his equal. Uh, and he, what does he do? The Bible tells us there in that passage, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, wounds, pouring on oil and wine. When he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to the inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and, and, whenever, uh, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus finishes that story. You've heard the story before. In fact, it's a term even today if you talk to people who have never read the Bible and you say to them, what is a good Samaritan? Many people can just define what a good Samaritan is because this is this story. Jesus finishes that story and he looks at this lawyer and remember the lawyer's question was what? Who is my neighbor? And that is the question we're asking today. Who is my neighbor? And what did Jesus say to him? He says this. Look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, I, I, I like how he um, kind of altered the question. See, the, the lawyer had said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, well, uh, basically, who, who was, which of these guys was neighborly? Which of these guys showed themselves to be a neighbor? Was it the one who, who would have... Um, most likely have known uh, this man or even had uh, uh, knew where he was from or was it the one who was uh, completely different from a different culture 
taught and believed and knew different things, which one was neighborly? Uh, it's, the issue is not really who is our neighbor, but really the issue is who should you not be neighborly to? Is the idea Jesus was trying to get across. The book, the book had this quote. It says, it's not really about the identity of our neighbor, but about our identity as a neighbor. And the command here that he gave of love your neighbor applies to all people at all places. It's not just the person who lives next door. It's the person who, who lives <laughs> uh, completely in a different location from you. And you may not even be like them. Is who we should love. We are to love the person who lives next door. We love the person who lives across town in a place that's not like you. We are to love the person who, who is of a different color, a different background, a different national origin, and even a different religion. The command to love your neighbor extends to all people. So when we talk in this passage today, when we talk in this message today about who is our neighbor, I am not talking. I, I am not specifically talking about the person who lives next door. I'm talking in the broader sense of of that everyone should be your neighbor. So how do we love our neighbor? What does that look like? We know the command, but what does it really look like for us? couple things we want to look at. First of all, we need to be a neighbor. Now, that might seem obvious. You might say, well, duh, if you're to love your neighbor, you've got to be a neighbor. But what does that mean? Uh, over the last couple months, we've looked at these two great commands, love the Lord your God, and then the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. We talked about a few weeks ago how the command to love the Lord your God comes from a passage in Deuteronomy. It's a quote from, a, from what the Jews followed in Deuteronomy where they were told, to the, the greatest thing they can do above everything else was to love the Lord your God with everything that you have. But what you may not realize is that second part of the, the statement in love your neighbor as yourself also comes from the Old Testament. It's also something that the Jews were taught. And it's found in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, it says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your, uh, uh, excuse me, bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am uh, the Lord. So the Jews were taught that they were to love their neighbor as themselves. Now it's interesting, if you want to turn there, you can, but in Leviticus chapter 19, where this is from, God is telling the people of Israel to be holy, to be separate, to be different than all the other nations, to act in a way that is pleasing to God. And then he begins to, to talk about what does that look like. And one of the characteristics of what that looks like is loving your neighbor. And in Leviticus chapter 19, he gives us a, a description of what loving your neighbor looks like. So let me just quickly go through that. You don't have to turn there, but it's in Leviticus chapter 19. I'm going to look at a number of different verses. In Leviticus 19 and verse 10, God says to them, And you shall strip your vineyard bare, you shall not, excuse me, you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. One of the things that a characteristic to be neighborly means caring for the less fortunate. Let me describe what was happening here. We don't live in a farming culture, so we don't understand this, but imagine, if you will, you were on a farm, and specifically here he's talking about a vineyard, but that carried over to all types of crops, and what he told them was this, when you go and you reap your harvest, okay, leave stuff on the vine. 
And the purpose of leaving stuff on the vine was so that people who are traveling through, who are, are traveling from place to place, that they have something that they can eat. Or maybe someone who's poor and doesn't have the opportunity you have, he says, take care of them. And so we see from this that a characteristic of being neighborly is caring for the poor. Now, most likely that does not mean the person who lives next door to you. We have a responsibility to care for the poor. That is a biblical command for us as, as child, children of God. is to care for those who are less fortunate than us. He goes on, uh, it goes on here in this passage, in chapter 19, verse 11, it says, you shall not steal. Okay, that's, that's pretty neighborly, isn't it? To avoid stealing. Okay, uh, uh, you, you are at your house and you look next door and your neighbor has something nice from you. Stealing would not be very neighborly, would it? But it goes on beyond just the person that lives next door. It goes on to how we interact with people as a whole. That sh- being neighborly means not stealing. That same verse says you shall not lie. You should be a truth teller. You should be one that is truthful in all your dealings. In, va- in fact, in verse 13 he goes on, he says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night. This is talking about business dealings. And it's interesting because what he's saying here is to be neighborly, to, to love your neighbor means that you deal fairly with them in business. Uh, especially us as Christians. We should be, we should be honorable in, uh, businessmen that are filled with integrity. Do you do that? I love, personally, I love working with business people, whatever it is, whether it's at my home, some uh, repair, or anywhere else. I like working with people who are going to be fair to me. They're going to be honest with me. And they're going to treat me properly. Um, I'll, I'll deal with those guys any day. Um, in fact, I told you earlier that our, our uh, AC is not working. I texted Pastor Nate, who's on vacation. He handles all of the that, the grounds type stuff. And I texted him and said, our, our AC's not working. And he said, I'll text the guy who does that stuff for us. He texted him. And the guy um, just texted Nate back. And Nate texted me and said, he'll be here tomorrow morning. He's a guy who works hard for us. And he's very fair in how he does things. That is neighborly. That is That is the idea. Verse 14, he goes on, he says this, You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Now there he's talking about people with disabilities. He's specifically addressing the deaf and the blind, but it could be anyone with disabilities, and the idea is we're to care for them. We're to be people who care for those who have disabilities and go out of our way to try to help them. He goes on in verse 15, and he says there, You should not do injustice. You shall feel, uh, deal fairly with people and justly with people. Verse 16, he says there, you shall not go around as a slanderer. You shall not slander your neighbor. Slander uh, the people around you. What does that mean? That means speak uh, wrong about them. Speak in a way that is hurtful and harmful and, and painful to their reputation. He goes on in verse 17. He says, you shall not hate your brothers in hearts. You shall uh, love your neighbor. And so the opposite is you shall not harbor hatred or anger uh, and towards them. You shall be kind to them. It's interesting, verse 17, though, he also says this. Listen to this. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. The idea of that phrase is there. You shall correct them when it's necessary for their good. You 
to correct them when it's necessary for their good. The idea there is is that we should love them enough to say, hey, this is wrong, so that for their own good. And then verse 18, the one that's on the screen there, he says you should not take vengeance, you should not bear a grudge. I think as we look at that passage, it covers quite a bit of things, doesn't it? We are called by God to be wholly separate in difference, and the biggest difference we can see is how we love the people around us. Do we love people? Not just love them and say it, but in the way that we act. Let me ask you this question. How are you doing on this command? How are you doing? What are you or can you be doing to show love to your neighbors, whether they're your geographic neighbors or whether those in the broader sense? What can you be doing? Um... Let me ask you this question. And I actually have one of my neighbors visiting today, and so I'm going to answer this question honestly. Do any of you have annoying neighbors? I don't, okay? I'm honestly saying that. I don't. I like all the guys, all the people that live around me. But do any of you have any uh, um, any annoying neighbors? Anyone? Okay, you don't have to say who they are. If they're here. Please don't raise your hand as well. Now, I have in the past, in other places we've lived, um, where we have, my wife and I have had neighbors where it's just like, oh my goodness. Um, but yet, we're still commanded to, to love them. We're still commanded to uh, treat them this way. Now, that, that could be simply like trying to show them kindness, uh, or it could be doing more that... Uh, to show them love in bigger ways. Well, let's go beyond our geographic neighbors and go to, to a bigger sense. What about people uh, across town or even people across the world? What should we as a church be serious about meeting the needs of people who, who, who uh, uh, we need to be neighborly to? There was a movement that started within churches about 100 years ago uh, that became known as the social gospel. Maybe some of you have heard of that. In an attempt to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, what uh, people started doing is they started realizing, hey, if, if I meet the needs of, of those around me, um, and maybe it'll give me an opportunity to share the gospel. And the intention was very good, but what happened is some of these organizations were created, and over time they met the needs, but they, they forgot about the gospel part. Okay? And we'll get into that more in a minute. I'm I'm not even dealing with those organizations because many of those organizations are still phenomenal in what they do. I'm going to give you an example. One of the organizations that was born out of that period was the Salvation Army. And and they do still incredible things. Um, But what happened was is many churches began saying, well, you know what, they're not doing what they originally intended to do. And so they began to, in some ways, distance themselves from these organizations and even what the organization was doing. And there became this idea of, hey, as a church, we're not about meeting needs uh, of, the, of the community. We're not about social things. And so we should avoid that. But that is not very neighborly, is it? We are to be taking the gospel to the world around us, but we're to be doing it in a loving way. And so because of that, it should concern you when you hear about people that don't have money, don't have opportunities that you do, who have physical disabilities, who struggle in some way. It should be something that as a Christian tugs on your heart and causes you not to just feel bad for them, but do something. 
Uh, just just Friday, I got a phone call from a guy who who was talking about uh, struggles that his family is going through. And we as a church, uh, specifically Dennis Porter, stepped up and found a way to help him. But it should concern us, not just here in our neighborhood, but how about around the world? It should concern you as a Christian that, that there are 780 million people in the world who have no access to, to clean water. 780 million. There are 2.5 billion people in this world that do not have proper sanitation. Toilets. That should concern us. The Bible tells us we are to love our neighbor. And and here in this passage in Leviticus, he told us what that looks like. And that means caring for those that don't have the opportunity to care for themselves. That means being truthful. That means being honest in our dealings. That means loving and caring in anything that we can do in that. We need to love our neighbors. Whether it's on your streets, whether it's somewhere else in Mishawaka, whether it's somewhere else in the world. So we need to uh, love our, be a neighbor and when we are a neighbor, we will love our neighbor. But secondly, we need to be a witness to your neighbors. A couple of weeks ago, we discussed how the church is supposed to obey the great command, which means loving God and loving others. But if we are loving God and loving others, then we will also be obeying the great commission. What is the great commission? The great commission talks about making disciples, making followers of Christ as we share the good news of Jesus Christ. The Great Commission is a natural response to the Great Commandments. Loving God, loving others. The Great Commission applies uh, not only to the nation of the world, but also to our neighbors. Take your Bibles for a uh, little bit here. and The rest of the time we're going to look at uh, Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. In Romans, in this Romans chapter 15, Paul is writing a letter to the church in Rome and he's getting to the end of his letter and he's, he's kind of, as you do in a letter, he's kind of given some last thoughts and, and so he's telling them here uh, what uh, the, the, the ministry that they have, which is the greatest ministry, uh, is to, in love to God and in love to your neighbors, is to tell others about uh, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But he, he begins to talk to him, and I want to read to you uh, a, a portion as we go through here. First of all, Romans chapter 15, and starting in verse 14, it says this. As Paul is speaking, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourself are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace uh, given me by the gospel to a to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit let me explain what those verses mean and we're going to look at there are six descriptions of a church that is um, making disciples of our neighbors the first one is focus what do I mean by that well let me explain some of these verses if I if you will let me Okay. Uh, Paul was commending them. At the beginning of verse 14, he says, I myself am satisfied about you. He says, I, I want to I commend you. I want to um, congratulate you and how you were acting. And he describes to the, uh, them in, in three statements. First of all, he says to them, you are, in verse 14, he says, I want to commend you because you're full of goodness. 
What is the idea there of that? The idea is that they were people who were living in a way that was right before God. They were, they were good spouses. They were good parents. They were good employees. They were good neighbors. They were good Christians. They were good business people. And in every aspect of their life, they were rightly motivated and were characterized by a moral excellence in their lifestyles. Do we display that kind of goodness? And Paul was commending them because they were, they were good people basically. The second thing he commends them for, if you look in the verse, he says they were filled with all knowledge. Paul uses a word there, filled with all knowledge, which signifies a knowledge which is gained by by learning, by effort, by experience. As they went through life, they they learned and they gleaned from God and they knew more about God and, and they understood the Bible. And he's commending them for that. He said, good job, you understand the Bible. So So get this, they were good people. They understood the Bible. But then thirdly, notice what it says next. It says that they were able to instruct one another. Now, the, the idea of this is that they were able to, with that goodness, the fact that they were good, and the fact that they knew the Bible, they were then able to uh, instruct. That word instruct means to counsel or to guide one another. Now, this is not speaking of what I am doing right now. This is not uh, a, a pastor getting up and speaking. It's not a teacher getting up and speaking. It specifically says one another. And so what they were doing is this. They were living good lives. They were, they were full of the knowledge of the Bible. They knew the Bible. And so with that then, they were doing a good job of encouraging and, and, and building each other up by, by being willing to talk to one another about struggles that they were having. They were challenging each other. They cared so deeply about one another and about the, those in their church that they took the time and honestly they took the risk to lovingly confront people who were doing the wrong thing. And Paul's commending them on that. I think many of us fail to do that because we're afraid of conflict. Either we go into denial and avoid confrontation altogether. Uh, you know, I know that person's doing the wrong thing, but I, I don't want to confront them. Or, sometimes we, we face it head on with arrogance. We go and we talk to someone in a demeaning way and say, hey, you're not living the way you should, and we put them down, and we, by doing that, impact the relationship in a negative way. Or the third option is we shrug it off because we don't want to hurt our friendship. But all of these reactions are inappropriate. God expects us, and and God tells us not just here but in other places, that we have a responsibility to lovingly admonish those around us who are, are living in a way that is not pleasing to God. This is not just the job of the pastor. It's a job for every one of us. I appreciate that there are some of you here in this room who have come to me at times and said, Pastor, I don't, I don't think you're doing the right thing on this. I appreciate that. Because guess what? There's a lot of times I'm not doing the right thing. I'm, I'm a human. I am a sinner. And it's only by the grace of God that we do the right thing. And so we're supposed to do this. What, what drives me nuts is when I hear people say, uh, usually it's wayward Christians, well, everyone's judging me. Now, we're not supposed to judge in the sense that we're not supposed to you know, condemn them uh, and put them down. In, 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 a, in a prideful way, but Scripture does tell us that we are to admonish one another. And what Paul is saying to this church is, you guys are doing a good job at that. And, and, I'm, and I'm, I appreciate that. But then in verse 15 he says, but, 
On some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. What does he mean by that? He's going back and he's, uh, he's kind of reminding them of a number of things he had already told them previously in the book that, that they, they, they either neglected to remember or that they had never learned. And so he's reminding them, he said, there was numerous points here where I had to boldly speak to you uh, about things that you were doing wrong or that you were not doing. If we go back and we look at Romans, we're not going to take the time to look through that, but there's a number of key things that he taught them. He taught them in chapter 1, he said, the Gentiles or, or, or those who were not in Christ that had, had, had never heard the good news of Jesus Christ are still condemned. He says they're without excuse. A person uh, who uh, is, is saved, who has come to Christ, is not saved because of their moral goodness. He talked about that. He says there, there is none righteous. None. And so we're not saved by that. We're saved by the grace of God. We see that as well in Romans. He talks about where more sin comes in, even more grace is present. And then he goes all the way to chapter 8, and he reminds them, and this is what we read earlier, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so Paul doesn't pull back any punches when he's talking to them. He makes it very clear, and his purpose here is to remind them. In fact, if you look at verse 15, he says, I wanted to remind you of these things. That word, uh, be, the way of reminder, is actually an interesting phrase in the Greek. It means to over-remind. Okay? To over-remind. You ever feel like someone has uh, over-reminded you to the point of pestering? Paul is saying, that's what I'm doing. I want to remind you. I want you to continue to go over and over. And then he gets down to verse 15 the end of verse 15, and he tells them why he has the ability to speak with such boldness. Verse 15, he says this, because of the grace given to me by God. He says, why is it that I have the ability to speak with such boldness? It's because that God has given me grace. It's not because of Paul. It's not, Paul's not saying, I can do this because I'm better than all of you, because he wasn't saying that. He was saying, I can do this because God has given me grace, and so therefore... Through that grace, I want to teach you, and I want to give you a grace and extend to you grace. But then in verse 16, he reminds them of then the key responsibility that he had and that in turn we have. And what is that? Look at verse 16. He says, To be ministers of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel. Okay, what does he mean by that? He's telling them that all of these things, that in verse 15 he said, hey, you guys are full of goodness, you're full of knowledge, you're doing a great job of confronting one another. You remember all these things that I boldly said to you, and I said all of that by the grace of God, but he said, I want you to focus in, and this is where we get to that word focus, he said, I want you to focus in on your single most important task. And what is that? To minister the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I think Paul realized what we see today is that most churches do a number of really good things. We have good programs. We have good events. We have programs for our youth. We have programs for our kids. We have programs for our, our, our young at heart, our older uh, generation. And we do all those things, and they're, and they're great. But what he's saying is this. But I, what I don't want you to forget, however, is that the greatest task that we have is to, to love our neighbors enough that we share the gospel with them. The good news. So focus in on that. The second thing he says, not only focus, but awareness. 
Look, if you will, in this passage, look at Romans chapter 15 and verse 16 I read a moment ago. Uh, but then look it down in verse 19. He says, By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that uh, uh, from Jerusalem to Ilocrum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. Paul wanted them to be aware and to keep alert to the fact that as we minister the gospel to the nations, we're doing something specifically there. And what is that? We're doing an act of worship. In verse 16 he says this, In the priestly service, we are serving God. A few weeks ago I made a statement. Okay, here's, here's where I'm admitting that I, that I make mistakes or that I confuse people, that I don't always say things clearly. A few weeks ago I made a, a statement here in church and I had a number of you, probably four or five of you, come up afterwards and say, you know, Pastor, you said something and it really confused me. <laughs> okay, I say some, some things sometimes and it confuses me. So uh, that's, that's understandable. And um, what I said in my message was that our motivation for sharing the gospel should not be to save people from hell, but because of love for God. And some came up and said, well, wait a second, isn't that a good motivation that we love people enough that we want to save them from hell? And I said, yes, that, that is, and I think I created some confusion, and so I want to uh, explain what I meant by that and, and show you from this passage. What, what he is saying here is this, yes, we are to love people enough that we share the gospel, but we need to understand that the, the, the reason that we're doing this, the biggest motivation for why we do this is because we're serving God. We're worshiping God. And the more aware we are of God, the more we want to worship Him. The more we want to share the Gospel. So he's telling them, I want you to be aware that your, the, your reason for being a minister of the Gospel, the reason for this great task of doing that is because you're worshiping God. Thirdly, what should be a description of a church that is uh, loving their neighbors enough to share the Gospel is that they are Christ-centered the Christ-centeredness. Look in verse 17. Paul continues on. He says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. In verses 17 and down to 21, describe the priorities and the principle that shaped Paul's ministry in the time of his writing. Paul stated that he was proud of of the things pertaining to God. I want, to, I want you to keep in mind other places Paul talked about how uh, arrogance and, and bragging was something that he hated. And so what is he talking about though here? He's saying though he is boasting in Christ. Paul did not brag in himself. He was boasting in Christ. He understood that, that it, was, it was God. Notice, he, he didn't say, I boast about what I have done through Christ. No, he, the idea of what he's saying is I boast about what Christ has done through me. And he understood that, that it wasn't about him, that as he went out and he shared the gospel, it wasn't about him. It was centered on who Christ is and what Christ has done. Let me give you an illustration to try to help you understand this. Um, uh, let's say that after this you're going to go out to eat. Okay, how many of you are anticipating going out to eat after this? A few of you. Any of you going to a steakhouse, a place that serves steak? Okay, some of you. Okay, imagine you walk into the steakhouse and you order the steak and they bring it out. Um, I've used this illustration before, but you go to Ruth Chris, okay? And uh, they bring it out and it's sizzling. And it's, uh, you can just hear the butter, like, 
sizzling on the steak, and you're thinking, this is going to be a good steak. And they place it in front of you, and all of a sudden, while they place it in front of you, the, the knife and the, and the fork on your plate all of a sudden stand up, and they begin to do a little dance and proclaim how good the steak is. And they proclaim how, how awesome this steak is going to taste and how, how, man, this steak is wonderful and it's all about us. We did a, such a great job with the steak. Now, that's absurd, isn't it? Because the knife and fork did nothing to produce a good steak, did it? They're simply instruments. They're tools that you use to eat your meal. Similarly, we are instruments that God uses to do His bidding. Now, we don't, you don't take that steak and you cut it up and you take the fork, poke a piece of steak, you put it in your mouth, and you mean, man, fork, you did a good job. You don't do that. That fork was just an instrument. And what Paul is reminding us and what Paul was saying to the church in Rome was this. Uh, He says, you know what, it's not about me, but I boast in Jesus Christ. I boast in what Christ did. And he said there in that passage in verse 18, for I I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished. Paul was a guy that could have boasted in himself. I mean, he was a, a, a phenomenal individual. And he could have gone and said, you know, let me tell you about how many churches I've planted. But he didn't. He could have said, hey, let me tell you about how many times I've spent in jail because of uh, I was telling people about the gospel. But he didn't. He said, ah, there's only one thing I want to boast in, and that's Jesus Christ. Because for Paul, everything centered around Jesus Christ. It was fo- we understand that we need to be focused on the past, we need to be aware of our purpose, we need to be centered on Christ, but we also need to be centered on the gospel. And it might sound like, hey, how can you be centered on both? Because you can't have the gospel without Jesus Christ. Look, if you will, at verse 19, uh, excuse me, verse 20. He says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not already been named. We can never lose the importance of the gospel. Now, we have talked about the gospel as a church for the majority of this year, so... Uh, many of you know what it is, but let me remind you what the gospel is. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, which was done to pay for your penalty of sin that you could have never paid on your own. That's the gospel. Every single person who has ever lived offended God's holiness with your sin. Even if you're not the worst of sinners, every single person who has ever lived except for Jesus Christ has committed sin. And and maybe it's, you know, you lied once, you're a sinner. You had a wrong thought about someone, you're a sinner. And the Bible tells us that sin that you have in your life condemns you to eternal punishment. And we know of that as hell. A horrible place, a horrific place, a place that not one single person will want to be in. It's a place of torment. It's a place of separation from God. It's a place of darkness. And the Bible says that that is the destination of every single person who has ever lived because of their sin. God in His love said, I, 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 I'm not willing that every man should perish. 
I want people to come to me. And so in that, he sent Jesus Christ, his son, who was himself God, to earth to live a life here on earth, free from sin. And yet he died. Most of you know it was a, it was a horrible death. And he died, not for his own sin, but for yours and for mine. And there is not a single thing in this world that you could do to secure your salvation. Jesus did it all. That is the gospel. And Paul was so passionate about the gospel that it was his life's ambition. And he wanted to take the gospel wherever he went. And he says in verse 20, I make it my ambition, my goal, my drive, my heart, that even 2,000 years later, uh, there are people that are still talking about Paul and what he did for God. Yet here's the thing, even 2,000 years later, there are still places and there are still people who have never heard the gospel. They've never heard what Jesus Christ did for them. Even in our own country here, there are people who have never heard that. There are people who the only thing they know about Jesus Christ is something they say when they're angry. And Paul's heart would be for us to follow in his footsteps and focus on those who have never heard the gospel. He says specifically there, I want to go in a place where, where Christ has not been named, where there, where there are no other churches. And so that was his, his desire, and that should be our desire. This means that our church and other churches should be about forming churches where there are no churches going in places where they've never heard. We need to be committed about world evangelism as a church. Next week, or excuse me, two weeks from now, I'm going to be talking the, the next chapter, which is uh, taking the gospel to, to the world and talk about specifically missions. But it's, it is an area that should be what we should be doing and planting churches throughout the world. And Paul was gospel-centered, and a church that is loving its neighbors should be gospel-centered. It should be all about the gospel. Next, there should be an urgency. And I need to, I'm going to wrap up in the next few moments, so stay with me. I know it's warm. Verse 22, he says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Here's, here's the thing about Paul that you need to understand from this passage. He was so consumed with taking the gospel to his neighbors here and around the world that he would stop at nothing. He was willing to go wherever, whenever, however, for as long as it took. Specifically here, he says to the church of Rome, he says, I'm going to come here, I'm going to come to you a bit. Now, you've got to understand and you've got to remember that this was not an easy thing for Paul to do. Travel was difficult. And yet he said, it's such an urgent thing that I, I get the gospel to you. I need to do it now, and I need to get there as fast as I possibly can. And he says, I'm going to come, and when I come, I'm going to share with you the gospel. And then he goes, I'm going to continue on to Spain, and I'm going to share the gospel there. Because Paul's desire was to take it to the whole world. Now we know, Paul never made it to Spain. Uh, he was imprisoned and ultimately killed for his faith, and so he never made it to, to Spain. And so we are to continue the task. But I believe that sometimes we've lost that urgency. 
taking the gospel to the world. And finally, everyone, everyone, reach one. In verse 24, he Paul says, I'm going to pass by on my way to Spain. And he says, and you're going to help me there because everyone needs to do their part. We all need to care enough about our neighbors to love our neighbors that we're willing to give them the gospel, whether it's on your street or on a different continent. Let me ask you, are you reaching one or two? What are you doing to show your love to the world around you? I want to conclude with saying a couple statements. First of all, we need to be available to our neighbors. What do I mean by that? I want to conclude with some practical ideas. I want this to be very practical for you because many times I'll preach a message like this and some of you will come up and go, man, yeah, we need to be doing that. We need to be loving people uh, uh, all around us and we need to love them in such a way that we're willing to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to do that. And many of you will say that. We need to do that. I know that. But how? And I say this not to condemn uh, churches. I say this as a, a reality. I was just talking to someone about this this week. I think what has happened too much is we as churches, we've, as, as churches have grown and as churches have gotten bigger, what has happened is churches become about what happens in this building. And we expect people to come to us. You know, why don't people come to us? And then when they come to us, then we'll tell them uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. But I, I don't believe that's what we see in the New Testament. I think what we see in the New Testament is, is as a church, the church was going out to the people. So what does that look like for us? I want to give you three really practical things that we want to start doing as a church, and I want, I want to include everyone here. The first one is this. We want to continue building relations with, with our our. Uh, our civil workers in, in, in our town, specifically. Um, many of you are praying every day for a police officer in Mishawaka, and that's fantastic. That was well received by the police department, and it's something that we've received numerous letters from police officers and from uh, the police chiefs thanking us for that, and, and the gifts that we gave them, and the, the basket we gave them of goodies. And the, I think we can go beyond that and expand it. To show our love to the, the community that, hey, we're not just a group of people that come and sit in this auditorium, but we're, we care about our community. We love the people of Mishawaka. And, uh, and, and letting them know that, whether it's expanding that to the fire department or other public workers. Letting them know we care. Another aspect that uh, actually is mentioned in this book, but it's something that we've talked about as a staff, is that we want to do uh, in the coming year is we want to adopt a school. What do I mean by that? We take a school and we're, we're praying about what that would be and we just let the, the teachers, the students, the staff know we as a church love them. Okay? No expectations from them. We don't expect them to do anything in return. Just let them know we love them. Okay? Bring them letters. Give them gifts. Give, give out things to the teachers. Um, and let them know we care. Uh, we are we are to love our neighbors, our community, and there's a way we can do it. And then finally, if you look in your bulletin, uh, you'll see on September 9th we're going to have a, a special Sunday. We're, we're in calling this Sunday "Invite Your One Sunday," and here's what I'm asking you as a church to do: 
Many times we'll say, hey, you should invite people to church and, and bring them in and, 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 share, and give the opportunity for them to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. But here's what I would specifically want you to begin praying about is on September uh, 9th, we're going to have uh, invites your one Sunday. And I want you to uh, do everything in your power to get one person here that could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe it is someone that lives in your neighborhood. Maybe it's someone you work with. Maybe it's someone uh, that you run into every day at the gas station. Or maybe it's someone that you see every day, at, uh, every time you go to the bank. But find someone. So what I want you to do right now, uh, even as I'm talking, begin writing names of people in, uh, on the paper there that you can invite. I don't mean people from, that go to other churches. I mean people who, who uh, maybe don't go to church, maybe have never gone to church. But you can invite them. So you can tell them, hey, we as a church love you. We'd love for you to come out to our church service. And that day is going to be focused around that. And I'd love to see uh, our, our number bigger. Not because we need a bigger number, because we have an opportunity then to share the love that we have for our neighbors. So as a church, we can do that. And then as individuals, what can you do? Again, as you interact with, with people in your day-to-day work, Find ways to let them know you love them. Find ways to let them know that you care. And what begins to happen is they see there's something different. And it gives you an opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ. I challenge you, are you loving your neighbors in this world and around the world? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you'll help us to be serious about this task of uh, loving our neighbors, as your word tells us, and we know that's everyone. There is no one that we should not be neighborly to, even those that we don't get along with, agree with, and understand, know, or that we will love people in our lives. Lord, I just thank you for that. I just pray that you'll work in God. In Jesus' name, amen.